Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. 27% gain in the S&P 500 in 2021. What a year. So what do we do now in 2022? We all reset and think about uh, where the opportunities are. Let's check in with Phil Palumbo. He's a founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. Phil, what are you telling your clients about this year, where the opportunities are? So the bubble has clearly burst in the most aggressive part of the technology sector. And so I would stay away from that area in, in particular and buy boring quality stocks as we think about 2022. And it's all in the backdrop of the Federal Reserve, how inflation is going to continue to be a problem. I don't know how they're just recognizing it now. It's going to continue to be a problem in 2022, which means it's going to have to continue to be hawkish. In that type of environment, that means rates will climb higher. When rates climb higher, it puts a lot of pressure on technology stocks, especially the most high overvalued parts of the technology sector that we've been talking about for a while now because they're long-duration assets mm. and, and their cash flows that people are paying for. And then in, in a rising interest rate environment, you see a shift towards financials, outperforming, energy, commodities, and gold. So I just want to step in here because you had a, a, a pretty um, interesting comment at the top where you said the tech bubble is popping. What Was that happening in the last three days that you really started to see the unwind of that? Was it the Fed meeting minutes yesterday that clarified in your mind we're moving faster than we thought? When did you start to see this unraveling? Remember, markets are always forward-looking. So since December 15th, when the Fed started to get more hawkish, you really started to see some of these high flyers correct from their highs anywhere from 30 to 80%. So I could argue that the bubble started really last year and it's continuing right now. And that's not going to settle in until really the Fed settles in in terms of where they're comfortable in terms of raising interest rates and everything that they've been talking about at some point this year. Phil, how do you think about inflation out there? It's real, whether you... You see it at the gas pump or you see it at the supermarket. It's real. How do you think about it? It's always been real. The, the, what people have to understand is that when you shut the whole world down, as we did in 2020, and then you restart everything, and then you have multiple variants that are, that are occurring, as we're seeing, it's going it's to it's gonna create a, an issue with supply constraints like we've seen. And, and then with all the money that's been put into the economy, you know, that's going to create inflation. We know that because if you look at the history of the amount of money that's been put into the economy measured by M2, inflation has always started as a result of that. Then you put money into consumers' pockets, which created this pent-up demand in durable and non-durable goods in 21. And all of that pull-forward effect is, is, is why we're seeing the inflation numbers that we're seeing today. And that's going to continue because look at Omicron and the issues that's, that's occurring uh, w you know, within, uh, within consumers and people staying home now and, and manufacturing plants and, uh, you know, not being in full capacity and issues going on with China shutdowns, et cetera. So the, the pressures are going to continue. This just, just doesn't go away in a year or two. We haven't seen an event like this in over 100 years. So it's a totally mm -hmm. different playbook. So that's why I believe inflation is going to continue to be a threat to the economy, and, and the Fed's going to have to act even more hawkish. And as you mentioned earlier, that means rates are rising. And I know a 173 on the 10-year is hardly um, high levels given the absolute mm -hmm. still so low levels that we're at. But I am curious, 
if we start to think about a 2% on the 10-year, when does that become attractive when you're thinking about a rotation from equities after the big run-up back into bonds? Is 2% tempting at all? Timing bonds and interest rates is very difficult to do. I would argue that every portfolio, every investor needs bonds in their portfolio to help protect when stocks really get, get hit hard. Obviously, the past day or two, there's been a move down with both stocks and bonds. And that's happened, you know, May of 2013, that happened. And you do get periods like that, that that do occur, but it's not normal for that to occur over long periods of time. So it's not a question of timing or when to get in bonds or out of bonds. It's more of using bonds as a way to hedge against stocks. So, Phil, on the equity side here, um, sticking with kind of the cyclical play here, are there sectors that really kind of jump out at you in 2022 that you're talking to your clients about? What I like a lot right now is, as I said before, markets are forward-looking. So Omicron, it seems like it's going to settle in, kind of come and go relatively quickly based on some of the data that everybody's looking at. So if that's the case, then most likely over the next two, three, or four months, you can see consumers going back out there and spending money on services and travel and so forth. So I like airlines here. I like Disney here uh, as an example as we think about the kind of reopening trade coming back in vogue. And you have to get into that now before that starts, which, in, which again, we'll, we'll probably see the, the um, spending of that over the next three and six months. So you've got to get ahead of that trade. So I like that sector specifically. I also like financials. So as rates rise, obviously financials make more money. That's the bottom line. That's the way it works, which means earnings will be greater. So I like that trade. And I also like energy a lot as well. As the global economy does reopen, assuming there is not another variant that, that comes across, that affects uh, that affects individuals and right. so forth. I like I like the rebound in the global economy and and, and energy. So that's the sector that I like as well. All right, Phil. Thanks so much. Uh, appreciate getting your thoughts here as we uh, again reset and set off for 2022. Phil Palumbo, he's the founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. He did stints at UBS and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. So he's been doing. Uh, this investment game for a long time. And that's why we appreciate speaking to him, which we get some really good ideas. And he is really focusing on that reopen trade, which once again is coming to the fore. We got the Fed minutes yesterday. Uh, I think the two key takeaways from the market's perspective is certainly a higher chance of earlier interest rate hikes and maybe even a balance sheet rundown. Uh, and that was reflected in the markets immediately. Let's see what that really means for the near and intermediate term for these markets. We do that with Katie Nixon. She's the CIO of Wealth Management at Northern Trust. Katie, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us here. What was your takeaway from those Fed minutes yesterday? Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. And I think you nailed it. I mean, I think it pulled forward expectations for the pace and the sequencing, frankly, of the next policy move, I mean, I think we were used to post-global financial crisis having a gradual end to quantitative easing, then a sort of quiet period, then liftoff, and then eventually quantitative tightening. And I think what we're recognizing now, um, certainly explicitly in the FOMC minutes, is that the, the not just the pace, but the sequence is going to be pulled forward. So we could be in the position of seeing quantitative tightening in 2022. How much of that is also taking into account the balance sheet? Because it seemed like the markets were also caught off guard that balance sheet 
runoff could happen maybe shortly after the first rate hike, where in previous years it was almost two years before mm -hmm. the rate hiking cycle started that we even started talking about a balance sheet. Taylor, you're so right. And one of the one of our um, themes this year was that the the increased pace of um, of taking the foot off the gas with quantitative easing would easily be absorbed by the market um, because of the reduction in the issuance of Treasury. So there would be sort of a supply-demand balance, even with the big um, source of demand being the Fed sort of lightening up. Um, it, it, pulling quantitative tightening into 2022 really does change that because that puts a lot more supply of Treasuries on the market that will have to be absorbed. Um, and perhaps, uh, you know, interest rates will be the mechanism through which uh, investors are are tempted and are, are taken into into buying bonds again. So I think it does really change things um, if if the Fed now that's a big if, because it's certainly not our base case that we see this, this sort of very aggressive QE liftoff QT in 2022. I think that's the risk case. Um, it's not our base case, but that that is a that is a risk case because it does put a lot more paper on the market, frankly, at the end of this year. So, Katie, what, what is the kind of the base case for the good folks at Northern Trust in terms of the economy in 2022 going into 2023? Well, I mean, we think the, the we're sort of seeing that we're getting past the peaks. So we're certainly anticipating that sort of in April, May, we'll be past the peak inflation. And we're also anticipating we're going to be past peak growth. So one of our longer-term themes is this sort of reversion to mediocrity. So we do anticipate this process starting in 2022, whereby this very high level of economic growth that's been clearly propelled by policy, whether it's monetary or fiscal or combination, um, will come off the boil. So we're seeing sort of more 4, 3, 2% type GDP prints as we get through 2022 and into 2023. But the good news for investors is that's growth that is good enough to keep earnings positive, And it's also more sustainable, frankly, um, than the high levels of growth that we saw um, certainly this uh, this past year in 2021. So it's good news for investors that growth and inflation will come off the boil. It sets the stage for sort of more modest but positive returns for risk assets. And it also takes the heat off the Fed from having to be even more aggressive in policy unwind. So equities still the place to be? Yeah, equities are still the place to be, Taylor. The fundamentals are very strong. We anticipate sort of mid to high single-digit earnings um, in, in 2022. We think along, I guess, with the market at this point that valuations have become a bit stretched. So perhaps we see a little bit of give back um, in terms of valuation, but that still leaves mid to high single-digit returns for, for equities in, uh, this year, which is, uh, which is pretty good coming after uh, uh, several years of very, very high returns. Absolutely. And Katie, I think one of the things that equity investors are trying to grapple with now is where do I want to be in this equity market? Do I want to be in those growth names that have been so good to me over the last dozen years or so? Or do I stick with this cyclical trade, the kind of a reopening trade, if, if you will, whether it's commodities or energy and banks and things like that? How do you think about it over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, well, one of the things we've told our clients um, pretty consistently, actually, for the last couple of years is you really you don't need to pick a team here. Um, you can have all the players on the field, and you should, because you can't deny sort, sort of the secular tailwinds that are behind some of these great growth stocks. We see sort of an IT spending super cycle coming um, in the next couple of years with, you know, 
big capex in the form of IT spending, um, propelling earnings from some of these big tech companies. At the same time, we do think we're going to be in a sort of re, a re reopening trade here um, with the global economic recovery continuing um, to, to see momentum in 2022. So you want that cyclical exposure. The one thing I will add, Paul, though, is at this stage of the economic cycle, with the best sort of GDP prints behind us, it's probably not a bad time for investors to think about putting some defensive names in their portfolio. Um, healthcare comes to mind. Um, so we would say put all the players on the field. You'll be there when um, when that particular sector or style is in favor. Um, and we do have a positive outlook on equities in general. So that, that will help as well. But if you don't have yep. defensive, defensive in your portfolio, take a, take a good look there. All right, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective, your thoughts. Katie Nixon, CIO of Wealth Management at Northern Trust. One year anniversary of the January 6th uh, insurrection, I guess, at the Capitol Hill. And a lot of angles to cover. One of them is how has that, the events of January 6th a year ago, impacted the interaction of government and big business? We all know that the... Uh, a lot of money sloshing around Washington, D.C. from big business, uh, pushing around legislation. The question is, how has that changed really over the last year, if at all? Paul Washington, executive director of the ESG Center for the Conference Board, joins us. Uh, Paul, give us your thoughts here. Uh, we know how pervasive big business, political action committees, the money associated with them uh, have impacted Washington really since the beginning of time, I guess. How has that changed in the last year, if at all? Sure. And first of all, thanks for, for having me. Uh, what happened is um, the majority of companies that have employee-funded PACs um, suspended their PAC contributions for some or all of this past year in light of the events of January 6th. And then, um, and then frankly, they, they changed their policies on whom they're giving to, the criteria they use, and so forth uh, in, in the last year. It's actually become a much more challenging environment for companies to navigate in, in Washington these days, both on the contribution side and on the lobbying side. Are they being more careful given how maybe more open, the pressure uh, given the rise in social media, how people are calling them out more? Uh, is it really coming from pressure from you know some of the local people on the ground? You know, it's what's really striking is that most of the pressure that um, companies are responding to is coming from employees and senior management. It's coming from within the company itself. Um, but those are the main drivers for companies to suspend their contributions or PACs to suspend their contributions. Um, external pressure, um, less so, um, though traditional media was important as well. So really employees, senior management, uh, traditional media, and then one thing, one factor that wasn't a big issue for companies was investor attention on this issue. Yeah, but Paul, I, I I know some companies temporarily suspended uh, some of their activities, some of their fundraising. But this is Washington D.C. after all. This is mo this money's coming back, isn't it? Yes, it is. Although I, I would just say this: um, look, I, I completely understand a lot of skepticism about corporate money in in politics. I would note, though, that. Uh, corporations tend to be a bit more of a moderating influence uh, in their contributions. They tend to give uh, the, their PACs, which are funded by employees, tend to give to both Democrats and Republicans. And frankly, they focus more on results than on wild rhetoric. 
Um, so what you're really seeing is that corporate money, which tends to be a bit more mainstream, um, is actually being overwhelmed by other types of sort of dark money out mm. there. Um, and uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. I understand people can be really skeptical about corporate money point. and politics, yep. but when you look at the numbers, it's, it's kind of a little different story. What are some of the issues then that are at the forefront in terms of the mainstream, the moderate corporate money that you're seeing? What are some of the issues that they're most interested in and seeing progress through D.C.? Sure. I mean, it's it's infrastructure policy. It's trade policy. It's um, it's really industry specific, often um, issues that they're focusing on. Um, and that's the bread and butter for companies. Um, and that's what drives uh, a lot of their contributions. What caught companies off guard in the last year was how many and this isn't related to money. It's more related to their public stances and their lobbying was how much pressure was being put on companies to take stands on social issues that aren't necessarily traditionally core to their business, things like voting rights. So companies in the last year, it was really challenging for them. They were being asked to weigh on a whole bunch of hot button issues, especially at the state level, that they just you know, hadn't really thought of as part of their responsibility. But now, now they are. Paul, this is an election year, congressional election year. How does that typically impact businesses' involvement in, in, in Washington? Uh, it makes it, um, uh, it, it, there's heightened level, obviously, of, of corporate giving, but it's also uh, a time where it can be really difficult to get anything done on the lobbying side, on, you know, policy changes, legislative changes, um, simply because uh, the focus is on the election and people are, you know, are playing a lot more politics. So election years tend to be even more difficult on the public advocacy side for companies. Uh, at the same time, the companies tend to give more money. All right, Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there, your expert opinion on what's happening down in Washington, D.C. as big business continues to uh, navigate uh, one year after the uh, January 6th insurrection. Paul Washington, executive director of the ESG Center at the conference board. Taylor, I just got a text from Amazon. There are three boxes sitting outside my door. I don't even... Are any of them yours? I don't even know. I don't even know <laughs> what... But it's like every day Amazon is dropping stuff at my door. I don't even know how it happens. But I looked down at the stock. It hasn't done anything in a year. Mm-hmm. Trailing 12 months, up 4%. What is going on there? Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Also runs a firm, Ritholtz Wealth Management. So he's been in this money management game for a long time. Barry... What do you make of Amazon? I mean, the mighty Amazon, Jeff Bezos. I mean, he's out on yachts in the Caribbean over New Year's, but the stock hasn't done anything really. Yeah, after a fantastic 2020 where Amazon really was was the logistical hero of the lockdown. Not yeah. only were they delivering supplies and food and uh, from from Whole Foods to Amazon, but Amazon Web Services was keeping the internet up and running. Uh, they very much stumbled last year. And if you go down the list, first, Bezos, who's been with them from day one, the founder and CEO for 20 years since the mid-90s, stepped down as CEO. That's a giant loss. Uh, They seem to have lost their status as the low-cost option. I I think when everyone's sitting at home and staring at their screens all day, when you go to buy something on Amazon and it looks a little more than cheap 
it's easy enough to Google around and say, oh, you know, this is more expensive than elsewhere. Uh, that's not how any of us behaved a decade ago. You, oh, it's on Amazon? Have it delivered the next day. And, you know, they've made some changes. There's a ton of advertising on the site. It's much less attractive. And there's a ton of third-party sellers, which, if you remember eBay, uh, yeah, third-party yeah. sellers are a big headache, both regulatorily and and administratively so no surprise they had a mediocre year the stock was up two and change two percent when you compare that to their peers when you look at you know google and apple and microsoft you know google was up 65 percent microsoft was up 52 percent I, I think Apple was up uh, 35 or 45%. Mm. Uh, 2% is, that's like losing money, yeah. relatively speaking. <laughs> so talk to us about not only Amazon, but big tech. Because when it comes to some of the regulatory overhangs on this stock, people were saying this is an administration who outwardly says they hate big tech, they hate monopolies. But it's been a lot of bark without a lot of bite, at least when it comes to the rhetoric of, about breaking up big tech. Where are we with that regulatory overhang on the stock? Yeah, I don't I don't see big tech being broken up as much as hey, the next time Facebook and I still can't call it Meta. No, we're but, not going But there. the next time that company sees an Instagram or or Google sees a YouTube and wants to acquire it, um, we've seen that that acquisition process has led to less competition in the space facebook and google have really an uh, a death grip on online advertising everybody else is just kind of picking up the crumbs and so the likelihood is the likelihood is that um those sort of acquisitions and mergers are going to be looked at with a, a a much greater level of scrutiny scrutiny than we've seen in the past but the idea that we're going to break up Apple or we're going to break up Google, I, I'm kind of hard-pressed to, to see that as a, um, any sort of likely result right. anytime soon. You know, it, I'm just looking at the FA function here, the financial analysis function on the Bloomberg terminal for Amazon. I got a half a trillion dollars in revenue, and the consensus forecast is it's going to grow 18% in 2022 Another 17% next year. This is still a really good growth company. I'm kind of surprised the stock has kind of you know lagged or just underperformed some of its, its peers in, in 2021. Well, look at how well it's done over the course of um, two years. You know, when, when we look at when we look at Amazon, yeah, they had a pretty mediocre um, 2020, but 2021. I'm sorry. Yeah. But but look at the numbers, that, what they've done over the prior decade. The decade leading up to last year, the stock rose 1,830%. The company has a $1.6 trillion market cap. And as you've pointed out, for the law of big numbers hasn't kicked in yet. They're still growing at a substantial basis. The question is, how much of that is already reflected um, in the price, so I look at the the one year stock. It's it's up a year or a two percent. I look at the three year stock price. It's up a hundred and eight percent. And so that that says to me, hey, maybe this got a little ahead of itself, uh, and it needs to digest some of that growth. I, I look at the five year revenue 
numbers, it's just under 30%. Yeah. That that's that's a shocking shocking number, and and earnings have have over the five year period also doubled, so the growth story is still intact. The question is, hey, at one point six trillion, did it get a little ahead of itself valuation wise, and maybe it needs a year or so to digest those gains before it can start chasing the two and three trillion dollar club right. like Microsoft and uh, Apple. You know, it's interesting. I'm looking, Barry, at the ANR function. This is the Bloomberg function segment of the day. ANR for analyst recommendations. Sure. Get this. 59 buy ratings, zero holds, zero sells. Have we ever seen that before? Yeah, no. You, you've seen – nobody wants to be on the wrong side of that trade. It's been embarrassing for the handful of people who were negative on Amazon uh, over the past decade. And so I think – just from a career risk perspective, people <laughs> haven't. But it raises a valid question. You know, when we see upgrades, when we see raised targets, that can be a spur to the stock price moving higher. If everybody is in, if everybody is bullish, if everybody has a buy rating, what's the next catalyst going to be? The, the past few catalysts, um, uh, you know, Bezos stepping down was not a net positive. Uh, uh, obviously, he's a very highly regarded yep. CEO founder. Um, what if, what's the next surprise after Amazon Web Services? Yep. So maybe the company is uh, close to fair value, and, and therefore it's harder to drive that price high. Remember, a big chunk right. of Amazon is a retailer, and that's a very different multiple than a, a software company. <laughs> You're exactly right. All right, Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate checking in with you on these Thursday mornings. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist and host of Masters in Business, uh, on Bloomberg Radio, Ritholtz Wealth Management as well. He's a founder there. They run a bunch of money. So he's been in this game for a while. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.